Amen. One of the songs that we want to introduce to our congregation is what we have just heard during the offertory. Come people of the risen King. We'll introduce that to you again next Sunday. Well, there are many things in the course of our lives that we end up rejecting. We give up on tough challenges. We have given up on most of the New Year resolutions. It's only a month away, folks, since you have made them. This is the first Sunday of February. Four weeks away, you have made some new resolutions. And here you are. Some of you have already forgotten them. There's advice that others give us. And when we don't like it, we kindly reject it. We may even turn our, relation, our backs to relationships when they get tough. We reject many things in life. But one of the things that puzzles me about our human nature is the fact that we are able to reject love. Why is it that we human beings, even though needing to be loved, are also so prone to reject it and give up on it? Well, this morning, I would like for us to look at John chapter 3. And the theme of my message this morning is love rejected. Would you open your scripture to John chapter 3? We'll be reading from verse 1 to the end of the chapter. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 921. John chapter 3. Let's pay close attention to the reading of God's Word for our hearts this morning. Now there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. 
how then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Aenon near Salem, because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. By the way, this was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing, and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow your heads and let's ask God to give us his spirit to understand. Father, in these moments, we humble ourselves before you. 
recognizing that the wisdom of the word we have just heard stands not in us, but in you. Would you give us your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts? Would you penetrate there where we cannot see, where we cannot feel? Would you expose whatever's happening in our own hearts? And would you give us the willingness and the courage to come into the light? In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, John chapter 3 is perhaps the most well-known chapter of the whole Bible. Or perhaps we should say at least the name John 3 is known because of John 3.16. It is the verse that most people have heard or have seen its reference on billboards, on television commercials, on, on flyers. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him might not perish, but have ever everlasting life. It's the incredible truth of God's message for the world. Yet, most people focus on that verse alone, as if it had no context. The love of God is clearly put on display in giving us His Son, His only Son. But what else is going on in this famous chapter of John chapter 3? Well, the answer is pretty shocking. John tells us that the love of God is rejected. As a matter of fact, what John spends most of his time on is showing not only the love of God displayed in the giving of his Son, but also telling us from the very beginning of the chapter to the very end, but his testimony no one receives. I'd like for us to look at this famous chapter and how John introduces the love of God, how it is offered to us, and why is it rejected. And if you're here this morning, I hope you would consider carefully your own heart and examine where are you in understanding and receiving the love of God. Now, before we can understand the love of God, John begins with showing us our ultimate need. And this is what we see in the first few verses of this chapter, the need for a new birth. The entire chapter begins with this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, a member of the a Jewish ruling class. He, unlike others in chapter 2, who were suspicious of Jesus' authority to cleanse the temple, if you remember what we talked about last week, Nicodemus is not like the other suspicious leaders of Israel who were not sure what signs Jesus can make to solidify and, and make sure that his authority is proven. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he sees the signs and he says, yes, I believe that you must be someone sent from God because no one could do the things you do unless God was with him. But Jesus turns the conversation pretty quickly and he talks about a very important emphasis, the need of a new birth even for a religious man who rightly identified the authority of Jesus. Friends, the Bible cannot be any more clear 
than it is in this chapter that in order for anyone, that means you too, in order for anyone to see the kingdom of God, that person must be born again or must be born from above. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Baptist. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Catholic or a Hindu or just a religious seeker. Labels are not important. What is primary is the need of a new birth which has its origins not on earth, not in the will of man, but a birth from God. Friends, what we need is not just a turn of a new leaf in our lives. What we need is not just to move on with life and try to do it better next time. What we need is not just to find ourselves. Friends, let me say this. What we need is not even to find God. When Nicodemus met Jesus, the Son of God, he found out that he needed more than an interaction with Jesus. He and all of us needed and need a new nature that has its origins not in ourselves, but in God. So let me ask you this morning, do you ever think in your heart that if you could only be a little better, if you could only achieve a more cleaned-up version of yourself, you could see God? Or do you even do you say, or do you pat yourself on the back that surely you must see the kingdom of God, for you have done so many things for God. You have done so many things for the church. Friends, access to the kingdom of God requires a new birth. Now, a few months ago, I preached an entire sermon just on this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. Um, and when we saw the new birth is a universal necessity, the new birth is a human inability, the new birth is a divine miracle, something that God produces freely in us. If you'd like to know more about that sermon, you may find it on our website. It was preached on November 11th, last fall. Here, I just want to point out for us to see how this chapter that is centered on the love of God begins with our need for a new birth. God loved us not because we had a new birth, but because we lacked it and we desperately needed it. Some people say, what is, what is a Christian life about? Have you heard that question? What is a Christian life about? And, and here's some answers that I typically hear. The Christian life is not about rules. It's about a relationship. Have you heard that? It's a true answer. Here's another one. Um, the Christian life is not about being religious, but about being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And these are true answers. But I want to speak to all of you who think that you have a relationship with Christ. The Christian life is not just about relating to Jesus once in a while. The Christian life is more than talking to Jesus and then feeling that He's talking back to you. I say that because 
Many Christians who think they have a relationship with Jesus think that the Christian life is about talking to Jesus and Him talking back to you. The Christian life is more than talking to Jesus and feeling like He's talking to you. The Christian life is about a new birth. It's about a new nature that is given to us from above. And without that nature, without that new birth, it does not matter how often you talk to Jesus. Can I say that again? No matter how much you talk to Jesus, without that new nature and that new birth, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. Here's Nicodemus actually having a physical meeting, a physical talk with Jesus. And Jesus talks to him. And the one thing Jesus tells him is that it's not enough to talk to Jesus in order to see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. After all this back and forth, and by the way, just a note, for those of you who are still lingering on the thought, if you think you have a relationship with Jesus, Nicodemus had it. He had an interaction with Jesus. And for Nicodemus, it was not enough. What makes you think that you might have it better? It's not about just talking to Jesus. It's about that new birth. After all this talk between Jesus and Nicodemus, he's puzzled. Verse 9, how can these things be? And Jesus answers, to this, Jesus' answer to this question reveals not simply a lack of understanding on, on Nicodemus' part, but a refusal of understanding. For Jesus explicitly confronts Nicodemus that his problem is not one of intellect, but one of choice of heart. Look at verse 11. I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Now, which testimony is Jesus talking about? On one side, it's a testimony of what was just heard and said, the need for a new birth. Nicodemus had a hard time to believe it. But on the other side, it's a testimony about Jesus, about who he was and why he came. And this testimony is given to us in verses 13 to 15. Would you look at these verses with me one more time? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Now this was the testimony Jesus gave about Himself. He is the one who came from heaven. He, as the Son of Man, came from heaven so that He could be lifted up on a wooden pole just as Moses lifted up a serpent in the desert so that people bit by poisonous snakes would not die but live if they only looked to that bronze statue of a snake. That event took place in the book of Numbers, was a foreshadow of what the Son of Man will do so that those who believe in Him will also have life, but not just physical life, 
but eternal life. This is the only reason why the new birth is possible in the first place. So here's a, here's a point. A conversation about the need for the new birth ends up about being about the identity of Jesus and about his mission to be lifted up on a pole. Why? Because the new birth is given to us as a possibility only because God's only Son willingly agreed to die in our place. This is the only reason why the new birth is possible. This is the only reason why, why Jesus can speak about the necessity of the new birth, because He is going to make it possible. Because He is the one who's going to be lifted up. Yes, it's the Holy Spirit who produces a new birth in us, but that new birth is founded on hearing what Jesus came to do for us and believing it and thus receiving Christ. This was the whole purpose of John. Now, friend, this means that we don't just need a new birth in general. We, just, we don't just need a new beginning. That's not enough. What we need is, is a new beginning that has its center in, the, in origin in God, above. It is believing this truth about Christ that we are given access to a new life, to a new birth. Now, why is this clarification important? There are some people who think that faith saves them. Are you one of them? Do you believe that faith saves you? You don't have to raise your hand or nod your head. Friends, nobody's faith saves anyone. Nobody's faith can save anybody's sin. Christ alone saves us. Our faith did not pay for the guilt of our sin. Our faith is not that thing which pays for our sins, as if faith saves us. Christ alone was able to secure our salvation, and it is He that brings us life, if only we would believe in Him. This means that being spiritual, being faithful, is not good enough. Seeking the truth will not save you. It is only when you find it and you find the right truth, the truth, the truth about Christ, the truth about what He has done for you and me, and when we believe that truth, that we find salvation. Why is this important? Even for Christians, and I want to speak to Christians right now, it's not simply enough to say, I believe. We want to say, believe what? If you must be clear, you must be clear about the object of your belief. Christ, the Son of God, died for me in my place to rescue me from the wrath of God and give me instead His life to be adopted into God's family. We must be clear about the object of what we believe because it's not faith that saves us. 
but the object of our faith. Some time ago, a person expressed to me his disagreement why we would ask people to tell us the gospel before we would allow them to join this church. He was troubled that we would actually have some sort of a, call it test, I don't know exactly what words he used, that we would actually ask people to give us a summary of the gospel before they would join this church. That we should just believe that they believe, and that's enough. And the reason why we can't do that is because of this very point. Say, faith doesn't save us. It's the object of our faith that saves us. Therefore, when somebody wants to join this congregation or when, when one another we ask about the gospel, it's not because we want to know who's good at evangelism. It's not because we want to know who, who learned the drills of the gospel. It's because we want to make sure that you know what you believe. That object of faith which saves you. Because it's not just faith that saves you. And I, I want to speak to and right now to Parkless Baptist Church. To visitors, we're so glad you're here. Now, you may glean something from this as well. But Parkless Baptist Church, I want us to be clear about the gospel. Because that's the object of what we believe. And it is that gospel that saves us. Do you understand that? That's why we care. And we do not want to somehow pretend and, and give a, a pass of, of, of membership to someone, affirm someone's membership in the congregation, which means that we affirm they're Christians, if they might have a faulty understanding of, of the message that truly saves. It's, it's our care and love for the true faith and for the person and for you to make sure that those who become part of our congregation have a basic, clear, simple understanding of the gospel. That's our purpose. That's our reason. So, Jesus here clarifies that it is He, the Son of Man, who comes from above, lifted on a pole, people looking at Him and tr putting their trust in Him. That's what makes new birth possible, available. And it's a Spirit who brings it to us. Jesus clarifies for Nicodemus not only the, the need for the new birth, but the foundation of that new birth. It's the death of Christ. But when he talks about the death of Christ, the testimony that Jesus brings to Nicodemus, he says, but you people don't believe it. It's at this point in the chapter that the topic takes a most crucial turn. The coming of the Son of Man from heaven was not only the solution to our need for a new birth, now we are told that for the first time in this gospel that his coming from heaven was grounded in the love of God. The Son of Man coming from heaven is grounded in the love of God for the world. This is why the Son of Man came, because God loved us. Yes, he came because we needed a new birth, but he came because God, his Father, loved the world. So the Father gave the Son for the sake of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, if you have your Bibles open, notice, look at verse 15 and verse 16. And notice how similar the promises are. The Son of Man came from heaven. 
to be lifted out from Paul so that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. In verse 7, 16, this God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you see how almost verbatim those two promises are in both verses? It's like, it's like a preacher repeating the same point twice. I do that quite a bit. Why would he repeat it? Because of emphasis. Well, we were just told that. That's okay. Hear it again. So that whoever believes might have eternal life. But in verse 16, there's a difference. Whoever believes may not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, the mission of the Son of Man was a consequence of the love of God for us. In verse 17, we're told, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Now, we like this verse a lot. You know why? Because it gives us an example that we should not judge and condemn each other. Because it tells us that the Son was sent into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. We also like this verse because it seems to say that we should not use words of condemnation or judgment when we evangelize. Well, if you keep reading the Gospel of John, you get to at least two verses, and I want to point you to that direction. In John chapter 5, verse 26 and 27, we're told the following. You may turn there because you might mark that verse. It's pretty important. John chapter 5, verse 26 through 27. We're told the following. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Did you see that? The Father granted the Son authority to judge. They say, yeah, but that doesn't mean that that's why Jesus came to the earth. Fair. Would you turn now to John chapter 9, verse 39? John chapter 9, verse 39. Jesus says, For judgment I have come into this world. so that the blind will see, and those who will see will become blind. So what do you make of these verses? Are these contradicting John 3.17? The answer is no. For those of you who like the rules of logic, hear me out. The answer is no, because of one primary reason. Jesus is sent to us in John chapter 3, not to a neutral world, but to a world that is already lost and condemned. As verse 16 said, the danger Jesus came to save us from is perishing. Jesus came to save a world that was already condemned. The world is condemned whether or not Jesus condemns it. Our perishing is real. That's why Jesus had to come to us. And this is the great promise. It's on this backdrop of this bad news that we hear the words, 
that those who believe in Jesus are no longer condemned. Because he took upon himself our condemnation, we, those who believe in him and follow him and, and, and respond to him, we are not going to be condemned. But those who do not believe in him are condemned already. That's what verse 18 tells us. And they are condemned already also because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Many people think that as long as they stay out of trouble, they're fine. God will accept them. But that is not what this verse says. Our condemnation is now based on how we respond to Jesus. Our condemnation was in place before responding to Jesus. That's why Jesus came. But now our condemnation goes deeper and is, is, is even greater because even when God has given us his love and his son, we still reject him and therefore we remain condemned. Once Jesus was sent into the world, people have to make a choice about whether to believe in him or not, whether to accept his testimony about himself or to ignore it. The coming into the world of the Son of Man forces mankind to make a choice about what he will do with his testimony. Friend, did you make that choice? Have you responded to Christ by turning away from your sin and trusting in him for your salvation? If you're just checking Christianity out, first of all, I'm so glad you're here. We want you to be here. There's no better place for you to learn about God's truths than about being among God's people who seek to listen carefully to His Word. Friend, as much as we love you, God loves you even more. He displayed that love by doing the ultimate sacrifice any father would ever do to give His only Son that you may not perish, even though that is what you deserve. God gave his son so that you would not perish. Friend, no one else ever would love you in this universe in this way. No one. This is the ultimate display of God's love for you. He calls you to receive his son in your life, to receive his testimony, and the worst thing you can do is to ignore it. The worst thing you can do is to put it on the shelf and say, another day. When such a great love has been done for you, for you to walk away and say, I, I just don't believe it. I don't. Turning my, my, my back away. Because God loved us so much. Friend, if if you want to believe in him, if you want to believe in this love that God has displayed for you in Christ, you may say a prayer in your heart right now as you listen to these words. And tell God, it's a transaction between you and God. That you want to obey him, you want to follow him, you want to receive him. You believe his testimony about Christ. And if that's your prayer right now, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But friend, it is receiving that love that gives us a new status of not being condemned. But in this chapter, John tells us that even though this is the grandness, the, the glorious love that God has poured for us, 
in Christ, yet we reject that love. Yet mankind rejects this love. Perhaps this morning you might be struggling with this idea, with this choice of accepting or rejecting the love of God. Friend, this passage gives us a pretty insightful reason why that rejection takes place. And I want us to show you briefly why the rejection takes place. Look with me to verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. This is why people reject the love of God, because they loved darkness instead of light. Friends, our problem is not a problem of understanding, but one of attachment. We are too attached to darkness. We like it too much. We're used to it. Actually, we love it. We love darkness. This is our problem. This is why it's hard for us to accept and say yes to the love of God. And the reason why we love darkness is because our actions are evil and we don't want them to be exposed for what they truly are. So darkness is a safe place for us. That's why we like it. We love it. Now you may say, what is darkness? At the most general level, it's everything that refuses revelation from outside our world. Everything that refuses revelation from outside our world. We like that no one can tell us what to do. We like the fact that we are the ones who determine what is good for us, what is right or wrong. We do not need somebody else to tell us that. We are suspicious of the notion that God revealed himself to us and that somehow he has demands upon us. This is darkness, to ignore or refuse that God revealed himself to us. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word, revelation, is that light for us. So to live in darkness is to live without God's revelation. Now, to go a bit more specific, after Christ appeared on the world as the light of the world, darkness is defined as everything that opposes Christ. Darkness is defined as everything that opposes Christ. It's simply the refusal to accept the claims of Christ upon our lives because it's hard for us to give up on what we have done. Now, friends, please don't misunderstand. This darkness is not only for people who do bad things. Darkness does not necessarily mean morally wrong acts. Because in the Gospel of John, the people who were accused most of walking in darkness were the religious leaders who lived a very clean version of you, of what many of us would like to be. The Pharisees were very clean people, morally speaking. And yet, in the Gospel of John, they are the ones most accused of being in darkness. This means, friend, that it's not enough to call yourself spiritual, religious. Spiritual people can love darkness just as much as irreligious people. Because when confronted with the light of Christ, both spiritual seekers and irreligious people are exposed in their darkness. Verse 20 tells us, a little more about this challenge. Everyone who does, not, does evil hates the light 
and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Friends, nobody wants to be known as doing evil, right? If I told you that you are a man of evil works, I would probably not get invited by you to lunch today. Right? We like to think of ourselves that we are good people, even when we do bad things. So how do you know if you're good or bad? How do you know if, you're, if you live in the truth or your works are evil? Here's an interesting, incredible challenge, challenging criterion that the gospel gives us. Those who do evil do not want to come to the light so that their works will not be exposed. This means that you don't have to do many evil things to be in this category. You just have to refuse to come to the light and expose what you have done. This refusal alone puts people in the category of those who do evil. Let me ask you, is there anything in your life that you would not want to be exposed? Is there anything in your life that you would not want to be exposed? If there is, that puts you in the category of people who do evil. But, but there's hope for you and for me and for all of us. Look at verse 21. But whoever lives by the truth comes to the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. The reason why those who live the truth come to light is to expose not just their deeds, but to show that what they have done has been done through God. They come to the light because they believe what God has done for them in Christ, and thus there's nothing to hide for them anymore. That's why they come to the light. They come to the light not because they live perfect lives, but because they have turned themselves to God. Yes, God will continue to expose our wrongdoings, our evil acts, because that's what light does to darkness. We will never graduate from this stage until we die. But living by the truth means that we do come to the light even when we have sinned. And that's the life of a believer. We are not afraid to expose it and to repent of it because we trust of what God has done for us in Christ. It is the love of God that shines in our darkness, calling us to come to the light. And the rest of chapter 3 ends with a repetition of all these things, but now spoken by John the Baptist about Jesus. John the Baptist declares Jesus to be the bridegroom of the bride, and the bride are those who are following Jesus. It's this picture of love, the love that Jesus now has for those who follow him. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Friends, some of you may not be convinced of the love of God for you. Even though you've heard it today, some of you may still struggle to respond to the love of God for you. I want to leave you with one last thought. This love of God is not like the loves of others towards us. Ignoring the love of God is not like ignoring the love of another person towards us. You leave it and move on. Another person in your life. It's not like that. Because 
chapter 3 ends with a, a great promise but a great warning at the same time. The love of God, when we're confronted with it, we're confronted with God's solution to our already existing condemnation. So to ignore God's love for whatever reason means that you remain under his wrath. That's how this entire chapter ends. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son of Man has eternal life. What a great promise. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Friend, do you realize that you cannot just put God's love on hold or ignore it? You must choose it. And just like Jesus confronted Nicodemus, this is not just a matter of not being able to understand it, but not being willing to receive it. The love of God displayed for us and yet rejected. Would you pray for me, with me? Father, I pray, I pray for, for those among us or those who we know in our own personal lives perhaps are not with us, who have heard of your love but choose continually to reject it and to ignore it. Oh, Father, we, we dread that moment when they will hear the ultimate condemnation of your wrath. Father, I pray that you would enlighten their hearts, move them by your Spirit, that they would receive you, that they would respond to your love now until it's not too late. Father, we thank you for the promise you have given us, and we thank you that in your love we have the confidence and the assurance of being your children. In his name we pray. Amen.